Our second Bible reading is from Esther, chapter 6, starting from verse 1, and we'll continue to read until chapter 7 to verse 10. That night, the king could not sleep, so he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bithana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honour and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. The king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows he had erected for him. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honour? Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honour than me? So he answered the king, for the man the king delights to honour, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on his head. Then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honour and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honour. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse, and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He rode to Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honour. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief and told Zeresh his wife and all his friends everything that had happened to him. His advisers and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther, and as they were drinking wine on that second day, the king again asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Then Queen, queen Esther answered, If I have found favour with you, O king, and if it pleases your majesty, grant me my life, this is my petition, and spare my people, this is my request. For I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress could justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is the man who has dared to do such a thing? Esther said, The advisory and enemy is this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in rage, left his wine and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realising that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, A gallows seventy feet high stands by Haman's house. 
he had it made for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. Uh, thanks, Ishka. Uh, it's lovely to be here with you today, uh, church family, even if it's not physically, but at least in spirit. My name is Ollie. I'm one of the ministers here at St. Stephen's, and I'm going to lead us uh, as we consider God's word today. Uh, so as we begin, let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are good and that you care about us and that you want to be known by us. And so we thank you for your word that tells us of your goodness and care and that tells us who you are. We ask that as we hear your word preached now, our hearts might grow in love for and dependence on you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever noticed that some people want to be in control, think they're in control when they're not. Uh, I used to have a dog and he was like this. His name was Zaf and I'll show you uh, what he looked like. So uh, this is what uh, Zaf looked like. And so he was a pug and he was a great dog. He was uh, happy, he loved food, he loved naps. He was always uh, happy to see you. But the thing about Zaf, my dog, was that he always thought he was the one in control. And so if he wanted to eat, he thought it was time to eat and he'd bark at you, he'd run in circles until he'd convinced you it was time to eat. If he wanted to go for a walk, then he thought it was time for a walk and so he'd walk over to where the leash was kept in the cabinet and he'd kind of bang against it until you took him for a walk. Uh, if he wanted to go to sleep and he'd think it's time to go to sleep and so he wouldn't just get in his own bed, he'd climb up onto my bed and fall asleep and snore heavily there. See, the thing about Zap was that he thought he was the one in control, and so he thought he was the one making the decisions. But of course, he wasn't, was he? He wasn't the one going and buying the food. He wasn't the one who provided the house and the shelter that he stayed in. Even if he wanted to go for a walk, he going to take himself for a walk. See, even though he thought he was in control, he wasn't actually in control. And I wonder whether you've kind of ever seen anyone who's like that. The thing about being in control is that the one who's in control is the one who calls the shots. He's the one that provides, that cares for. And we see this all over the place in our society. For example, at schools, our principals and teachers, they're the ones in control. And so they're the ones that make the decisions about what gets taught, about what class divided, classes, how classes are divided. At work, it's the same thing. Bosses and managers, they're the ones that are in control. And they're in control because they're the ones that are meant to be able to provide for the work, to know how to govern that business so that it functions well and so that the people keep their jobs. Our government is in charge and it provides for and cares for its citizens. And so we see this at the moment. The government is giving us lots and lots of updates, the best medical advice about this coronavirus because they're the ones in control and so they care for us, the people under their control. See, in every sphere of life, we have people who are in control, who are there to help us live our lives well. And then how much more so then is the one who's in control of the whole universe important? Because they're the one that provides for us, not just at school or at work, not just in our local life here, but in every aspect of our lives. See, knowing who's in charge helps us to live life well because we're able to live under their provision. 
And so the question for us then is who's in charge? Who's in charge of the universe? And what we see in Esther 5 to 7 is it tells us who's in charge. It tells us who's in control. It tells us that, uh, it shows us that we, the world thinks that we are in control, but actually God shows that he's the one that's in control. And so, firstly, the world thinks that it's in control. Have you ever noticed that? That everyone wants to be the one in control. We see this here with the king. The king certainly thinks that he's the one in control. He's the one in charge. In fact, so much does he think that he's the one that's in charge, that he's got this law that says you can't even go and talk to him. You can't even enter his presence unless he invites you. He thinks he's in charge. Esther knows this, but she's willing to enter into his presence anyway to risk death for the sake of her people. And so she puts on her queenly attire and she comes before this king. This king, again, thinks that he's in control. And did you see what he does then? Verse 2, he welcomes her up. Have a look at verse 2. When the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. The king looks, and he's pleased. And again, in this control that he supposedly thinks he has, he holds out his golden scepter, which was just his way of inviting you forward to say, you're welcome, come and speak to me. See, he knows that she wants something, because he knows she knows the law, and that entering his presence without being invited is death. And so he knows it must be something important that she wants. And so that's why in the next verse, third verse, he asks her, have a look at the third verse, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. Again, we see that the king thinks he's the one in charge. And so he kind of generously offers her up to half the kingdom, I'll give it to you. Now, uh, this doesn't mean uh, literally half his kingdom, but what it is, is it's a figure of speech a figure of speech that says, I'm in a good mood, I'm feeling generous today. Ask what you want and it will be given to you. But interestingly, did you notice the term he uses for Esther? He calls her Queen Esther. This is the first time in the whole book that the king addresses Esther as the queen. He recognizes she's the queen. And so we're left wondering then, what will Queen Esther ask for? Is this the moment she's going to beg for the lives of her people? Surprisingly, she doesn't. Did you notice what it is that she asks for? In verse 4, she asks that the king and his attendant would come to a banquet that she's prepared. And the king, again, thinking he's in control, generously agrees. He says, yes, I'll come along. And he gets Haman, and along they go. And once he's there, he asks her again, what is it you want? Up to half the kingdom... I'll give you. And so we're left thinking then, uh, surely now is the moment that Esther's going to ask. Surely now is the time she will beg for the lives of her people. But again, did you see what it is that she asks? Surprisingly, she doesn't ask here. Again, she invites the king along to the next banquet. She says, I'll hold a banquet tomorrow. Come along then and I'll tell you. And what we see is that even though the king thinks he's in charge, well, meant to question whether he's actually in, the, in as much control as he thinks. So he keeps asking and asking Esther, what is it you want? And she doesn't answer. He keeps following her from one banquet to the next banquet. Even though the king thinks he's in charge, 
we see that maybe the king isn't in as much control as he thinks. The story then uh, moves to Haman, who also thinks that he's in charge. He leaves the banquet over the moon. Life is good. He's in on this special meeting that only the king and the queen were at. He's in the inner circle. Life is good. But then he sees Mordecai, and Mordecai won't bow to him again. And all of that in an instant is spoiled. He's filled with anger. But for now, he chooses to let it go, and he heads home. Once he gets there, he boasts his wife and his family, his wife and his friends. He says, look how wealthy I am. Look how many sons I've got. The king honors me above everyone else. I'm even invited by the queen to her special banquet. I'm in charge and life is good. But, he says, all of that's worthless as long as Mordecai is there. I mean, how bitter is that to let such a small thing impact and taint everything else in life. But that's what he's like. Haman can't stand the thought that anyone would defy him, that anyone wouldn't do what he told them to, that anyone would go against his control. And so his wife then comes up with a great solution. She says, build a gallows, 75 feet high. I mean, this is an absurdly big gallows. That's like 13, 14 times the height of a person. It's an absurdly big gallows an absurdly big ego because do you see how Haman responds he loves it this will show everyone who's in charge this will show everyone what happens when you go against him when you don't listen to him see Haman's so convinced that he's the one that's in charge and in one sense aren't we all like that aren't we all completely convinced that we're the ones in charge of our lives now, sure, other people might have, a small, might have their influence over small parts of our lives, but ultimately, we're the author of our own fate. We're the one in control. I mean, think about it. At school, we plan out what subjects we're going to do. We decide what subjects we'll do so we know what uni course we'll get into, and then from there, we know what job we want to get, and we plan out that even if that job doesn't work, then I'll take that job, and if that job doesn't work out, I'll take that job. We've got it all planned out. We plan out what age we'd like to get married by, when we want to have kids, how many kids we're going to have, where we're going to live. We plan out, even for our kids, we plan out what school they'll go to, we plan out what job we hope they'll get. And for our own lives, we plan out how much money we need to retire, we plan out what age we want to retire at, and we plan out all the wonderful things we're going to do once we're retired. See, I wonder if the way we plan out our lives shows us that we actually think we're the ones in control. Now, of course, uh, don't mishear me. I'm not saying that planning in itself is bad. Of course it's not. The book of Proverbs in particular is filled with lots of good advice about being planned and being wise. But what I'm showing is that our planning actually shows that we're the ones, that we think we're the ones that are in control. We think we're the ones making the decisions about our lives. See, just like the king, just like Haman, we think we're in charge. But in reality, someone else is actually in charge. Even though the world thinks it's in charge, even though we think we're in charge, God shows that he's actually the one in charge. We see it as the story continues. The king's there and he's trying to sleep, but he can't. For all of his supposed control, for all of his power, 
he can't even achieve this simple task. He's unable to sleep because he's not actually in control. God is the one in control. And God controls everything, even such a small thing. God's in control over the king. And so, while the king can't sleep, did you see what he does? He listens to his own history. It's uh, quite a vain thing to do. It's an incredible bedtime um, story to hear while you're trying to sleep, but he hears his own history. And he gets the bit about Mordecai and he asks, what was done for Mordecai? To which his servant replies, nothing was done for him. Uh, Just as this is unfolding, Haman comes in. He's here to talk to the king about the execution of Mordecai, ironically the one that the king's just been hearing about. And so as Haman comes in, the king says to him, what should be done for the man that the king delights to honour? Now, of course, he means Mordecai, the one who saved the king's life. But who does Haman think he means? Haman thinks he's talking about him. He's so vain, he's so completely obsessed with himself that he can't even fathom the possibility that the king could be talking about someone else. He thinks he's in so much control that the king has to be talking about him. Who else could there be? And so therefore, he kind of answers in the most extravagant way. He says this man should be clothed in the king's own clothes. He should go on the king's own horse. He should be led by the king's own noble. He describes such an honour. But of course... He does this because he thinks it's about him. He wants this honour. And you can just see his barely contained smile as he speaks, the glee in his eyes as he anticipates how great this is going to be. But did you see what happens? In an instant, his hopes are shattered because the king commands him, go and do all of what you've just said for Mordecai. And make sure you don't forget anything. Do it all. Imagine the look on Haman's face as his stomach drops, as his heart sinks, as he realizes that he'll have to honor his greatest enemy. It's a stunning reversal. And it shows us that Haman actually isn't in control. He might think he's in control, but God is actually the one that's in control. He's in control over Haman. This then kind of comes across in what, uh, in the incredible words that Haman's wife has for him. Because as the story unfolds, Haman quickly finishes his job and then he heads home as quickly as he can get there. His head covered in grief. He can barely, um, he can barely withstand the shame of having to honor his greatest enemy. And when he gets home, he pours out this grief and this shame to his wife, looking for consolation. But did you see what she says? doesn't have words of comfort, she only makes it worse. Have a look at verse 13. Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. Gee, um, you can imagine, he's thinking, gee, wife, thanks for the, thanks for the encouragement. But as discouraging as these words are, they're so true. She's realized that Haman's not actually the one in control, God is the one in control. And because Mordecai is of Jewish origin, that is, he's one of God's people, then Haman has no chance of standing against him because God is the one that's in control. Not Haman and not the king. But before Haman can reply to this, he gets bundled out to the next banquet. 
As they get there and begin, the king turns to Esther again and he says for a third time, what is it that you want? And so even though the king thinks he's in control, again we're shown that it's actually God that's in control through his servant Esther. Because the king has to keep asking and keep asking, what is it that you want? This is the third time he's asked and this is the second banquet he's been at. The king's not in control, Esther is in control underneath God. And so she finally tells him, have a look at the third verse. This is what she says. If I found favour with you, O king, and if it pleases your majesty, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. She lays it all out on the table. She humbly asks the king to spare her life and the lives of her people. And here, perhaps above anywhere else in the book of Esther, we see how closely tied the lives of Esther and God's people are. They're so intrinsically linked. And she asks the king to spare them. The king follows up and he wants to know who's responsible for the death and annihilation that's coming to her people. And did you see Esther's response? Have a look at verse 6. Esther said, an adversary, an enemy, this vile Haman. I mean, imagine being Haman here. Things have turned around so quickly, they've changed so quickly. Just the day before he was talking about how good life is, how many sons he had, how much wealth he had boasting and bragging about how good life is and how much control he was in. Yet now, in an instant, it's been turned on its head in just a day and he's terrified, sitting there before the king and the queen with his life in the balance. The king, in his anger, then storms out and so Haman can't talk to him. He knows the only hope he's got is to beg for his life from the queen. And so, as he does, he falls before the queen and do you see the irony? This whole thing started because a Jew, Mordecai, wouldn't fall before Haman. Yet now Haman is falling before the Jew, Esther. It's such a stunning reversal. The tables have been turned. It's the complete opposite of where this whole issue came from. The guards then come in and they seize Haman and they take him and they execute him on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Again, such irony, such a reversal, that here's these gallows prepared for his enemy, and yet he's the one that's killed on them. And we see the whole section is filled with irony and reversals, and what it's showing us is that God is the one that's in control. God turns things on their head. God is in control of everything, including men's plans. Throughout the whole section, God's reversing it. He's bringing death, life out of death, victory out of despair. God shows that he's the one that's in control. And as we work through Esther, chapters 5 to 7, it's meant to be a reminder to us that we're not in control. We might think we are, but we're not. See, we think we're in control of our money. And so we try and maximize it by buying shares or property. We invest it. But... The reality is that we're not in control of it. Things can change in an instant. We're seeing that at the moment where this virus came along and billions of dollars have been wiped off the stock market. 
in an instant, people's wealth just disappears. See, it's all out of our hands. There's nothing we can do. Even though we want to be in control, we're not. The world is not in our control. We think that we're in control of our own bodies. We decide what happens to our bodies, including when we have kids and how many kids we have. But sadly, uh, that's something we can't control. There's plenty of people out there who want to have kids but can't. Or for those who do have kids, they want to decide how many kids they have, but they can't. My parents wanted to have two kids, but then on their second pregnancy, they had me, which was a twin, and so they ended up with a third kid. They couldn't control even such a simple thing, or seemingly simple thing, as how many kids to have. Even though we want to be in control, we're not. The world is out of our control. And we think, we wanna, we think we're in control of our kids. Uh, we decide what, they, what, they, what we want them to study, what they'll grow up to become, a doctor or an engineer or a lawyer. But the reality is that we're not in control of them. At this, uh, whatever age it is, different for each kid, but at whatever age it is, they will grow up and they'll start making their own decisions, they'll stop listening to us. Even though we want to be in control, we're not in control. The world is out of our control and that's what Esther 5 to 7 reminds us it reminds us that we're not in control. The world is out of our control. But to contrast that, the wonderful hope of Esther is that even though we're not in control, even though the world seems so out of control, there's one far greater than us who is in control, one who is sovereign over all things, one who is powerful over all things. And that one is good. And that one cares deeply about us. And that one protects us so lovingly. Because while God spared his people here from physical death, he did something far greater than that for us. God, the maker and sustainer of all things, came down as the man Jesus Christ. And as he did, he put himself under the supposed control of this world. Under the hypocritical control of the Pharisees and teachers of the law. Under the violent control of the soldiers under the fickle control of the crowd, under the corrupt control of Pilate, and ultimately under the hate-filled control of Satan. They all thought they had control over Jesus, and so they crucified him. God become man, then killed on a cross. Sustainer and giver of all life hung there to die. But in a reversal, even greater than all of the reversals of the book of Esther combined... God showed that he was actually the one in control. Because in that moment of seeming defeat, as the victory cry was coming out of their lips, God twisted it, God turned it, and God showed that ultimately he was the one that was in control all along. Because Jesus didn't stay dead, he rose victorious to conquer death, to conquer sin, that all that trust in him might be saved See, God turned what seemed like the greatest moment of defeat into the most wondrous moment of victory, also that his people might be spared. This is the hope of the gospel, the hope of a God who's in control. And it's a hope that's particularly important in times like now, when the world's in panic, when people are hoarding and stockpiling food, when people are scared to go out in public, when the media's in a frenzy. God is in control even in a world that seems out of control. And so we, his people, don't lose hope. 
when sickness strikes, when people are dying, when the microscopic virus causes such havoc, God is in control, even in a world that seems out of control. And so we, His people, don't lose hope. When that disease decimates the economy and people face the prospect of losing jobs and losing homes, God is in control, even in a world that seems out of control. And so we, His people, don't lose hope. This is the hope that we have, a wondrous hope, that even though the world seems so out of control, God is in control and we're in His loving hands. It's such a wonderful comfort. And it's the same comfort that Martin Luther, a famous uh, Christian theologian from 500 years ago, uh, he found this same hope in the face of a similar issue to what we're facing now. A plague had hit his town and countless people were dying off. And so this is what uh, Luther said he'd do in the face of such, such a, a seemingly disastrous situation. This is what he said. He said, I shall ask God mercifully to protect us. Then I shall fumigate, help purify the air, administer medicine and take it. I shall avoid places and persons where my presence is not needed in order not to become contaminated and thus perchance inflict and pollute others and so cause their death as a result of my negligence. If God should wish to take me, he will surely find me and I've done what he has expected of me and so I'm not responsible for either my own death or the death of others. But if my neighbor needs me, however, I shall not avoid place or person, but will go freely, as stated above. See what he's saying? He's realized that God is the one in control. And so he doesn't panic. He uses wisdom still. He says he'll do what he can. He'll fumigate and he'll take medicine. But then he won't give up loving others. He won't lose heart. He won't panic. He'll go about his business knowing that God is in control. And if God calls him home, then that's what God will do. It's such a wonderful hope that he had 500 years ago, and it's the same hope that we have today in the face of a similar issue, in the face of a microscopic vi virus. We don't need to be gripped by the panic the world is because we know that God is the one in control. What a comfort to know that even though we're not in control, we're in the loving hands of the one who is. I'm going to pray and thank him for that. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that even though the world seems so out of control, even though it seems so chaotic, it seems like there's such panic, we thank you that you are in control. And we thank you that we, your people, are in your loving hands, that you are there providing for us and caring for us. And so we ask that you would comfort us, you would encourage us, you would help us not to panic or lose heart. We thank you for the reversal of the cross that ultimately shows just how in control of all things you are. We pray this in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.